Welcome to Clean Tech Forward, a foresight podcast where we explore clean tech customers, capital, and Canada's path to net zero. Tune in to learn more about Canada's most exciting clean tech startups, industry success stories, investor insights, and academic initiatives as we accelerate the growth and impact of clean tech together. This Clean Tech Forward podcast is supported by Gowling WLG. A global leader in intellectual property law, Gowling WLG works alongside Canadian clean tech companies to develop IP strategies that maximize business opportunities and increase market share while protecting valuable innovation. From idea to investment to international expansion, Gowling WLG understands the potential of your intellectual property at every stage of growth. Visit GowlingWLG.com backslash cleantech to learn how they can support your business today. Welcome to Clean Tech Forward. I'm Jeanette Jackson, CEO of Foresight Canada. Thank you for joining us for our final episode of our three-part series on capital. If this is your first time tuning into Clean Tech Forward, go back and listen to episodes one and two of season two to get the full picture on how capital is shaping Canada's path to net zero. Today, we're discussing the policies in Canada that are helping move us toward the net zero transition and what may be missing from our current legislative framework. By ensuring that Canadian venture capitalists are encouraged to invest in Canadian innovations through tax credits, carbon pricings, and other incentives, the Canadian government is accelerating the transition to a green economy. The last few months have been an exciting time in the world of clean tech policy. The United States released the Inflation Reductions Act, one of the most ambitious pieces of climate legislation in history, And in response, Canada has announced several new measures to further cement our existing legislation and to establish two new sets of clean tech tax credits. The first is a refundable tax credit of 30% of the capital cost of investments in clean energy technology, such as wind, solar, hydro, wave, and tidal power, and even nuclear energy projects. It also applies to electricity storage systems, low carbon heat equipment, and industrial zero emission vehicles. The second is an investment tax credit to support investments in clean hydrogen production. And hydrogen's a big deal right now. In addition, the government has announced carbon contracts, which guarantee that the government will pay the difference between the expected $170 per ton of CO2 by 2030 and whatever the price actually is at the time, regardless of whether or not the policy is changed or repealed. To discuss these changes and other levers we can pull in Canada to ensure clean tech ventures have access to the capital they need, we are joined by Sarah Hastings-Simon and Elizabeth Thorson. Sarah is a scientist by trade, has a PhD in physics, and is a professor at the University of Calgary, where she directs the Masters of Sustainable Energy Development Program, training future leaders through an interdisciplinary lens in the sustainable energy space. She is also the co-host of the Energy Versus Climate podcast, and has worked with McKinsey and Company in the oil and gas and energy sectors, and the Pemenda Institute, where she worked to influence and shape climate policy in Canada. Elizabeth Thorson is the VP of Operations here at Foresight, and has worked with the startup and scale-up business community for over 10 years in the areas of investment and funding strategy, marketing and sales development, and growth planning. Elizabeth has a firm understanding of what early-stage ventures need in order to develop, deploy, and scale their solutions and was recently enlisted as the MC at the Cleantech Tax Credit Announcement event in early November alongside the Minister of Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson. 
These new policy announcements were made within days of the unveiling of the Inflation Reductions Act, with the goal of keeping Canada competitive and an attractive location for clean tech investments. The question now is, will it work? Are these policies enough to give us the competitive edge? Canada has a significantly smaller population than the U.S., a smaller market size, and a smaller economy. Staying competitive in the clean tech space is going to be a difficult challenge to overcome next door to one of the world's economic giants. As Sarah points out, competing with a country the size of the U.S. could be a difficult task for Canada. Policy has a really important role in not just supporting kind of innovation, but really in the way that it actually, you know, we shape markets through our policies. And so, um, you know, there's sort of, I think, sometimes this myth that, you know, governments could just stand back and let things happen that doesn't really reflect the way that policy, uh, the, the role that governments play in, in shaping markets and how the way that markets are shaped ultimately influence, uh, you know, what happens. When I think about what the response was, you know, I think the tax credits are a piece of that. So really making sure that the policies that we already have in place are going to be really effective and are going to actually allow for investors to, you know, be making decisions on the basis of those policies is, is the one maybe piece that I, th I still see as outstanding from what we're trying to do. I think there's a lot of questions, you know, it's clear that as a as a smaller country, smaller, you know, smaller economy, we're never going to be able to go toe to toe with the US in terms of sort of size, number of dollars and things like that, that they are putting in innovation. And so then the question becomes, what what do you do about that? Right. And I think there's some examples from history, things like the way that, you know, the US and Canada approached auto manufacturing and the and the auto pact some gosh, more than more than half a century ago now, um, that are probably worth revisiting in this new environment. But I think it, at a high level, I would say we we have to be strategic about how we're going to be kind of filling in or, or what we're targeting and not trying to kind of compete directly with the U.S. on their own terms, um, because I think our, you know, our smaller econ economic size will will simply not be able to to do so. Competing with the U.S. for investment may be a Herculean task for Canada, but it's not always about competition. We are also collaborating with the U.S. on many fronts, including cross border projects, supply chain, and more. I can't reiterate this enough. Collaboration between stakeholder groups, companies, and countries is absolutely critical for our collective fight to curb climate change. Being a valuable partner means keeping pace with our collaborators. So far, we've done a good job deploying enabling policies that incentivize industries to adopt technologies that allow them to reach emissions targets and drive clean tech innovation. Canada has made being a carbon emitter expensive, and hopefully the new carbon tax credits will accelerate the development of clean technologies and give our carbon-intensive industries more options to help them decarbonize their operations. The recent policy announcements we've been discussing in Canada and the United States have really aligned our countries in terms of our emissions goals, and that framework that we're all working within can offer more opportunities for Canadian and American companies to find new collaborators, customers, and investors. According to Elizabeth, that alignment of priorities could facilitate more collaboration moving forward. The current political systems across the United States and Canada are, are really well aligned. I think there's great cross-border communication. There's great incentives for adoption in both sides. You know, would I like to see more? Absolutely. But we'll work within the framework and the system that we have. The United States is, uh, is bigger than Canada. And so it, 
Canada as a domestic adopter still being fairly small without the U.S. and the proximity uh, that, that it presents as collaborators, as customers, as capital, I think it would be a little bit more challenging for Canada. And so there are opportunities for us to both work together. I think that we're doing it very well. And there's probably a lot more that we can capitalize on moving forward to continue to facilitate those cross-border collaborations, whether research-based, you know, our our academic institutes working with some of the best in the world. Uh, we have formalized and informalized partnerships with a number of different clean technology accelerators and, and other you know, incubators and accelerators to facilitate that transition and flow of information and almost leveraging that co-opetition model where climate change isn't a problem that has borders. You know, if, if there's a wildfire in Washington, we get their smoke in Metro Vancouver. When a river is overflowing, it doesn't stop at a perceived land border. So I think we need to really get out of the mentality of this is a Canadian problem or this is an American problem. It's a global problem. And there's so much opportunity for us to team up with our, our neighbors around the globe and to focus on progress and solutions. This alignment of priorities Elizabeth mentions can only help to further our national and global net zero ambitions. And things are slowly changing around the world. Countries are opting into worldwide emissions reductions packs like the Paris Climate Accord. Consumers are taking note and demanding sustainable change. And government policy is supporting that call to action with legislation that affects consumers and industry. Traditionally, policy that governs industry was created with the intent of making those organizations more competitive. And in a way, the new carbon legislation does the same thing. In a world where carbon emissions carry hefty price tags, being carbon neutral is a savvy business strategy. According to Sarah, that may be the best path forward with regards to clean tech. Reducing emissions can give companies a competitive edge. And if we invest in technology that enables that reduction, we can make the necessary changes to achieve a net zero economy. You know, historically, a lot of industrial policy obviously, you know, didn't have such a climate lens on it. And it was more focused on how do we become competitive um, as a manufacturer, as a producer, or, you know, player in this space. So it's really about um, kind of investing in technological innovation and importantly, deployment of that innovation that allows um, industries to compete or, you know, through our through our new climate lens that allows industries to compete specifically by reducing their emissions. There's multiple parts to that, right? And there, there are certainly elements of that that are around uh, efficiencies. Um, but when we think about climate, there's a lot of things that we know that we're going to, you know, need to continue to pursue efficiencies while we're also really making fundamental shifts to the way that we're doing things, right? And whether that's, you know, the way that we're producing steel or the kind of cars that we're building or, you know, kind of these these much broader, bigger steps forward than maybe we take in a more incremental way. And so the industrial policy support comes in and really there, there is certainly risk that goes along with that, uncertainty that goes along with that. And so there's, you know, in my mind, clearly a role for government to play in, you know, taking on some of that early stage risk. And then ultimately, you know, in cases where it's successful, using a, a kind of a, a 
a basket of different tools at different times in the, the lifetime of a new technology or approach to support those, right? So it's kind of walking that whole technological development pathway from the early stage, you know, really direct investments. If I have one criticism of Canada there, it's that, you know, I think we rely sometimes too heavily on matching funds as a way to identify technologies that we are, you know, that the, the governments are willing to invest in. Um, and especially when we're talking about this real step t- change technology, you know, I think there is a, a good argument uh, for governments to kind of take on that, um, that first, that first project kind of on their own without that matching funds there. But then moving on from that to things like, you know, loan guarantees, also definitely a big part of what the, the US is doing, where and, and arguably even maybe more important in Canada, where, you know, you're not necessarily using direct dollars, but but you're able to reduce the costs by, you know, reducing the costs of financing down eventually through to, you know, whatever kind of tax uh, environment. And there, of course, you know, the fact that we do have a carbon price means that we have this tool that we can use that's, you know, not fully being utilized. Um, so the tax credits is is one piece of that. Arguably in, in a place like uh, Alberta, where I sit, where we already have um, an output-based allocation carbon pricing system that essentially creates uh, an incentive or a, a subsidy for renewable energy through the carbon pricing system. I think it's you know fair to say, of course, I want more renewables to happen, but I think it's fair to say it's questionable to what extent additional subsidies are needed. You know, obviously, I think they're they're very limited in what they can do on a directly provincial basis, but I think it surfaces one of the challenges um, that we have federally in, in providing this support, which is that it's going into provinces that already have policies that, you know, in some cases look very different. Climate policy, like climate change itself, is a very complex topic with no one size fits all solution. As Sarah pointed out, we've come to a situation where many provinces have policies in place independent of the federal government's policy, which leaves them in a difficult position where they are trying to navigate where and how to deploy supports that uplift clean tech innovation. Regardless of those challenges, the recent policy announcements demonstrate the Canadian government's commitment to its net zero priorities. While the new announcements incentivize investments into Canadian clean tech development, there is still more work to be done. Our very own Elizabeth Thorson, VP of Operations, was present alongside Minister Wilkinson and Parliamentary Secretary Terry Beach for the announcement of the clean tech tax credit system. Following the announcement of the new legislation, she said that she has heard from some stakeholders who hope to see more done in order to accelerate the adoption of new technologies as well. I think it's a really important way to improve competitiveness and to show that Canadians are prioritizing investment and adoption of clean technology solutions and clean energy solutions. And that's part of what this announcement did. really investing through the proposed 30% tax credit in things like electricity generation and storage systems, zero emission vehicles for industrial use, charging, fueling equipment, and low carbon heating shows that the Canadian government is taking their commitments seriously and and is taking climate action seriously. So while I don't think that this announcement on its own is going to solve climate change because there is no one solution, I do think that this credit to reduce capital costs of investment really helps to de-risk projects a bit which I know is a big challenge. And and we hear about it often from investors and from industry. Government being willing to lead on this really shows all of the clean tech ecosystem and really all Canadians that it is a priority to invest in a sustainable future. One of the consistent pieces of feedback that I heard from the subsequent roundtables that we held after the announcement 
was that the ventures were really looking for some permitting reform. So I think if anything was missing, it was it was really a lot of comments about it still being very difficult for ventures to test their technologies in market and also to gain customers in Canada because with so many of these technologies being new, groundbreaking innovations, they don't always fit within the scope uh, of permitting policies and legislation that's currently existing and that's been tested. So in order to ensure safety, in order to ensure efficacy, we really need to look at what thoughtful permitting adaptions or adaptations, excuse me, uh, we could enact to ensure that we can actually use a lot of the technologies that are being developed and use them at scale. Another challenge facing the Canadian government is the issue around the resilience of our climate legislation. The official opposition has publicly declared their intention to repeal the Canadian carbon pricing system if elected. That puts investors who are looking to deploy capital into the space in a difficult position. If industry is no longer incentivized to reduce carbon emissions, they may reverse course and abandon their net zero pledges. Funding a multi-million dollar project that may be abandoned after the next election cycle becomes a very risky proposition. I think it's an unfortunate reality that many entrenched industries are change averse. The long-standing status quo of being able to pollute with quasi-impunity while creating massive profits has been beneficial to a lot of industries. We've seen it for a long time that simply doing the right thing isn't enough, and we need these policies urgently to make polluting a very expensive way to operate a business. Having the second largest political party in Canada vow to repeal our carbon pricing system only hurts our chances of attracting domestic and international investment dollars. But the current government has come up with a clever workaround for this uncertainty, carbon contracts. These contracts are a guarantee that the government will pay the difference between the expected 170 per ton of CO2 by 2030 and whatever the price actually is at the time, regardless of whether or not the policy is changed or repealed. While we haven't seen the specifics of this system quite yet, the idea of this sort of guarantee is a tried and tested approach and hopefully will be enough to attract investors to the Canadian market. Here's more about that from Sarah. Well, the proof is in the pudding, I guess, with the carbon contracts and what, um, you know, when, when they're actually rolled out, I think the terms of them will be quite important. That said, I think there are certainly examples and, and you know, there's the example that we saw of, of quite a successful policy here in my home province of Alberta, where we had renewable energy contracts for different. So this really same, very much same concept, totally different market, electricity market versus carbon market, but the same idea of creating this certainty of revenue stream that in principle is, is you know, more bank. And those, I think it's fair to say, were, were quite a success in terms of the prices for renewables that they were able to attract. Uh, you know, And we know that a big part of the price of renewables, of course, is the cost of capital. So I think it's fair to say that that um, did create that certainty in that case. So I'm certainly optimistic about the idea that, that the same could happen within the carbon contracts for difference. You know, I think it's interesting in the U.S. case where, and part of this question of like, what creates certainty is really about, you know, it's kind of self self-referential or something in that, like, what, you know, if, if markets and investors believe something is certain, then it's certain, right? And, and so, you know, the US and these tax credits, part of what has created that, I think, certainty in the market for that tool is the fact that has just been used, you know, for quite a long time now. And, you know, there's the experience within the wind and solar space with the ITC and PTC in the US where, you know, investors became comfortable with that. And, and really start to trust that. And so part of it is that track record. And so I think that if we didn't have an opposition 
that was threatening to repeal a carbon price, we would certainly be a lot of way further towards having that certainty even without contracts for difference. Because, you know, arguably we've seen, you know, a couple uh, elections now in Canada that, you know, kind of confirmed a price on carbon as a policy standard. So certainly, you know, I think that that uncertainty really comes from that political space. Now, of course, people would say that, well, that's not all good and well to wish for, but that's that's not what we have. That said, I think that the the carbon contracts for difference, again, you know, when they're actually rolled out, really could go the distance as far as creating that certainty. And I think that's really important because it's it's building on a tool that we already have, right? And quite a lot of effort has gone in to develop the carbon pricing system to create, you know, it, it takes time to create these policies. We don't have time necessarily to create a whole nother, you know, new way of approaching this. It's hard to know if our recent measures will be enough to attract investors to the Canadian market or put us in a position of being a global leader in clean tech development and exports. Only time will tell how effective these new measures are. It is encouraging to see the government following up on their commitments with action and moving us all towards a net zero future. The move to scrap the carbon pricing system comes from a place of wanting to see Canadian businesses flourish. But as Elizabeth notes, the cost of doing nothing is much higher than putting a price on pollution. In recent years, we've seen example after example of record-breaking damages caused by climate catastrophes. Offering carbon contracts to investors is a great way to cement the policies we have in place and give investors the reassurance that their capital infusions won't be squandered. You know, on one hand, you look at at the government announcement and it's clear that they believe so strongly in building a sustainable and a livable future for all Canadians, that they are willing to, you know, stake their wallets, uh, so to speak, on the line for this. When I I think of the carbon tax, I sometimes think of, you know, I'll compare it to my own life and the cost of plastic bags or or plastic cups uh, when you go to the grocery store or to a cafe. Generally speaking, a lot of Canadians want to be more environmentally conscious and more sustainable in their daily lifestyle. You want to bring your travel mug or your reusable boxes and bags to the grocery store, but it's sort of a when I remember to do it. And when you look at, I'm going to save 10 cents by bringing my own, you know, cap or I'm going to save 25 cents uh, by bringing my own bags. There is a tipping point at some point that forces people to make different choices. So if it's 10 cents, you know, and I need five bags at the grocery store, I'm adding an extra 50 cents onto my $150 grocery order. It's not a huge impact to me. But if I had to pay $2 a bag or $5 a bag, I'm fairly confident in saying most people, that would be enough of a penalty to actually enact meaningful change. And so when you look at this at scale, when it comes to the carbon pricing, we need to do something that's going to incentivize people to actually change the status quo. And I think anytime there's a new financial penalty or increased financial penalty to businesses, it can be really tough to adapt to those changes, particularly at a time when you know we're currently facing rising inflation costs uh, across the globe. And so even now with the carbon tax having increased from $20 to $50 a ton, I'm sure that really affected a lot of businesses and and in a lot of different ways. And I can certainly see why the opposition leaders would be opposed to to that policy from a, a business competitiveness, from a costing perspective. But you can't just look at that piece in isolation. Uh, We know climate change is real. It's causing all sorts of severe and uncommon weather impacts. And these once in a lifetime storms, fires, floods uh, that used to be 
infrequent, truly once in a lifetime. They're increasing in, in frequency, in intensity, in severity, and that translates to a tangible cost. So when you look at the most expensive natural disasters across Canadian history, seven of the last 10 have happened in the past 10 years alone. The flooding in Southern Alberta in, and Toronto, Ontario's windstorms, since 2020, we've experienced the atmospheric rivers in BC, which basically cut off the entire province from the rest of Canada. Hurricane Fiona devastated the East Coast and the hailstorms in Alberta, which alone cost over $1.2 billion. Uh, these costs are staggering. And those all happened in the, in the last two years, really. So there is a defined cost to not acting. And there's a cost to, to not mitigating some of these worsening and worst effects of climate change. Um, so I, I'm of the opinion that the government, uh, which is really funded by taxpayers, shouldn't have to bear that cost alone. I think industry has a role to play. Individuals have a role to play. Everyone has a role to play. So entrenching protections that really ensure that we can continue as a country to incentivize minimizing carbon emissions, among other environmental impacts, uh, is essential to ensuring a sustainable future for everyone. As Foresight grows, we're connecting with more than 300 new Canadian clean tech companies every year, and we're still hearing that access to capital is not at the stage it needs to be in this country. There are many government-backed organizations that are working to fill this gap, organizations like NRC IRAP, SDTC, BDC, and others. These groups are funneling project funding into many Canadian companies and have a huge impact on Canadian clean tech. For example, on November 30th, we announced the second annual Foresight 50, a list of the 50 most investable clean tech companies in Canada. NRC IRAP funded 37 of those 50 companies, which is an amazing accomplishment, but they can only do so much. The need for private capital in the clean tech sector is massive. Many of the technologies being developed today are very capital intensive, and many of them won't see the light of day unless they are properly funded. This puts us at a disadvantage when we compete with global technologies. Similar to the confidence offered by carbon contracts, Having the government or government-backed organizations shoulder some of the risk associated with early-stage clean tech investing sends a powerful message to investors. I think it goes back to de-risking the investment. If the government or uh, you know, a pseudo-governmental organization, an associated government funding branch, or, is willing to stand up and say, I'm investing taxpayer dollars or I'm investing you know, funds raised into any particular venture, I think that that speaks volumes about its potential for exponential growth and return on investment. And for investors, that means that it's probably a sector or a technology that the government sees as important and that the government's going to work to support the policy or legislative barriers for them to get to market and rapidly accelerate as well. We hear a lot about you know, climate moonshots. I think this takes it from moonshot to about as close to a sure bet as any venture can ever be. Nothing's foolproof, but again, spreading some of the risk really helps to build confidence in the minds of a lot of investors, uh, in my experience and in what I've heard. Government really bears the cost of a lot of the worst impacts of climate, and so or climate change, I should say, and, and is also responsible in many cases for delivering essential services like water and power and investing in infrastructure like buildings and roads or, or municipalities investing in transportation infrastructure. They're always looking at the long-term strategy. And if these technologies weren't feasible and didn't show that potential return on investment, I don't think they'd be willing to assume that risk. So when we look at some of the market leaders in clean tech, in Canada, we know that they generate an exponential amount of return for every dollar that's invested. 
And that shows up in the creation of high-paying, high-skilled jobs. It shows in their ability to attract foreign direct investment into Canadian businesses and contributing to the tax base as they grow their sales exports and, and really overall revenue. So all of that is a benefit net to the Canadian economy, even without considering the moral, the health and the other benefits of investing in a sustainable future for all Canadians. For early stage ventures, especially pre-revenue ones, Lack of capital can be a death blow, but even at later stages, cleantech companies still need massive amounts of capital funding to get to scale. Unfortunately, many companies look south to the U.S. where capital is much more readily available. And as Sarah points out, so are customers. So what can we do? How do we ensure that there is an appetite in Canada for cleantech solutions? Carbon pricing is a good start, but there may be other options available to us as well. I think when you think about later stage capital, another important question is, you know, where are the customers, right? And I think one reason that we do, we do sometimes end up losing uh, companies to the US from Canada is a question of that customer base and being close to the customers. And so part of that then, part of that response is how do we get more customers here in Canada? How do we use the tools that the federal government has as a major procurer of stuff within this country, but really making sure that we're using the procurement power of the federal government and where that can extend, you know, where the federal government can help um, provincial and, and even municipal governments um, to take on some of that risk of procurement, say, uh, you know, I think that's a really important tool for creating that demand. And in particular, that demand in Canada that's going to attract that capital here. You know, when you think about it, at the end of the day, this all comes down to just people within companies, right, that are making these decisions and deciding whether or not to, you know, move forward with new ways of doing things or continue to do things the same way. And I think that risk um, profile for them in, you know, what's the downside risk of continuing business as usual if everybody around me is doing that versus the the risk of, you know, trying to kind of make that change. Um, and that's where I think that, you know, I talked about the government as, as customer, but also big companies as customers and really looking at what we're doing on the carbon pricing side and where we could be, you know, in some cases, I think, more aggressive with tightening um, some of the output-based allocation standards so that there is a clear market signal. And of course, you know, in principle, the, the idea of carbon pricing and setting these uh, benchmarks is that, you know, companies should respond to them just as if they weren't being given these free allocations. But I think the reality is, is that we know that many companies are not necessarily treating you know, they don't necessarily see those free allocations as simply maintaining that marginal price signal, but actually the amount of money that they're spending, say, on, on, on carbon emissions does figure into that bottom line. And so I do think that that is also an important element when I think about deployment of clean tech and who's actually going to be customers for it and who's going to be demanding it, looking at, you know, are we sending the right signals to our to our large industrial players across the country to really ensure that they are out there, you know, looking for and trying to implement those solutions as well. Corporations will often have a very different and sometimes oppositional set of goals and values compared to those of the government. Comprehensive and thorough net zero legislation can go a long way to ensure government, corporate and industry interests are aligned and moving us all in the right direction of net zero. But ultimately, the more stakeholder collaboration we have within that net zero framework, the better quality of policy incentives and initiatives that we'll be able to develop and deploy. Ensuring that industry, government and corporate interests are supported will only help showcase Canada's strengths on the global stage and attract international investment. 
As Sarah says, what we do now will have far-reaching implications into our future as a leader in the clean tech space. The policies that get made in Ottawa are going to have an important impact on what Canada does domestically and how those companies build or, or develop. Ultimately, what is going to happen as far as a market for our current products today, it's going to be much more around what governments do around the world, right? And as certainly as an energy exporter, you know, that's, a, that's going to be a, have a major factor or major uh, impact on uh, the demand for and the value of those energy products that we export. And so I think it's just increasingly important for, uh, you know, for that sort of understanding of that difference to be clear and and then the importance that the federal and provincial governments should place on trying to figure out how to respond to this external changing circumstances is going to be really critical if we're going to you know kind of adapt and and figure out how to be producing what it is that the world is going to be looking for from us in the in the future. Canada is doing well to position itself as a major exporter in the green transition. We certainly have the experience with a long-standing tradition of exporting our national resources for refinement elsewhere. But we now need to figure out how to pivot towards the export of renewables and sustainable technologies. As Sarah notes, our government is going to need to be vigilant and quick to respond to the demands of the global market so Canadian businesses can capitalize on evolving opportunities. The future of our position as a global leader and exporter of clean tech could depend on our ability to respond quickly to changing market conditions. And we're already seeing some traction. Canadian cleantech innovators are selling their solutions globally, and with a solid and secure legislative framework in place, our domestic market could expand as well. Canadian innovators are absolutely world-class and they're world-leading already. So although Canada faces a lot of challenges, uh, you know, lower risk tolerance broadly when it comes to private investment across all sectors, a smaller pool of domestic investors than our neighbors to the south, smaller population of adopters domestically, we still manage to punch well above our weight when it comes to innovations in clean technology. And so what we see and what we hear a lot already is that Canada is competitive and, and sees a lot of traction with global customers. Across the Pacific Northwest, it's really not uncommon for companies that are headquartered in Metro Vancouver to have their biggest or, or sometimes only customers scattered across the Pacific Northwest from Seattle to California. Uh, with water and agritech innovation, we're already seeing a lot of those solutions selling into global markets, you know, England, Ireland, the Netherlands, France, really all across Europe. And we're seeing a lot of demand coming from South and Central America, from Asia Pacific. I would love to have a map, uh, almost like a, a flight map uh, of, of Canadian clean tech ventures and where they export to globally. And the web of success that you would see would probably be really inspiring and surprising to most people. But in a lot of cases, traction and sales show that they're perhaps even more competitive globally than they are domestically. So I'm optimistic, uh, cautiously optimistic, perhaps, that through this announcement of the Clean Tech Tax Credit and the other initiatives that are in progress and underway, uh, as well as some hopefully to be announced soon, it may enable Canadian clean tech ventures in the green energy space to lower costs of domestic business and, and really enable them to be more competitive within Canada while still competing globally. The truth is we need to act with urgency if we want to achieve our net zero ambitions. What we do now as a country will have huge implications on our ability to attract investments into clean tech, achieve a net zero economy, and successfully navigate the green transition. The tools in place are important and have done a lot to put us on the right path, 
but we can do so much more to secure a clean, inclusive future. I believe we can get there. I like to end every episode with a note of optimism because when I look at the companies we connect with, the solutions they are developing, and the passion of Canada's innovators, I can't help but feel inspired. If we act with determination and urgency, I truly believe we can be the first G7 nation to achieve net zero. And we can only do that if we work together. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our series on capital. Next episode, we'll be back discussing the adoption of clean technologies, the barriers facing entrepreneurs who are deploying innovations, and what our industry partners are looking for when shopping for clean tech solutions. Don't forget to subscribe to the Clean Tech Forward podcast and to share this episode with your friends and colleagues. We wish you a happy holiday season and we'll see you in the new year. To learn more about Foresight's programs, events, and more, visit us at foresightcac.com or follow us on social at foresightcac.com.